Have you ever wondered where you came from? Maybe you've done one of those ancestry DNA kits to get some clues or sat down and had a conversation with your grandma or even your great grandfather to get a deeper insight of your family's story. For some people, it's easy, but for the rest of us, it's a little complicated. If you are like me, your family's story is scattered to the wind, all due to the fact that at one time, our government believed in the philosophy of kill the Indian, save the child. They tried to assimilate hundreds of thousands of Indians into the white way of life by removing children from the reservation. A lot of those children made it back home, but for the ones that didn't, they're still out there and we owe it to them, to their legacy, to find them. My grandfather's story once was lost, but piece by piece, day by day, I'm putting it together. I'm putting his truth into words so that we can learn from the sins of our past, so that we can bring all of the children home. My name is AJ, and this is Finding Clifford. Right now, everybody is looking at Canada. We all know about the 215 bodies that were found at the former site of the Campus Indian Residential School. And we're probably thinking to ourselves, oh, it's Canada, it's not in America. Thank, thank, good, thank goodness, it's Canada. But the truth is, we had more residential schools in this country than Canada did. We have missing, missing native children that went to these schools but never returned home to their families. I am two generations removed from the residential school era. This isn't an old story. It's a brand new, it's a current story that is still going on in this country today. My grandfather, Clifford Ballou, and his brothers, Richard and Glenwood, were scooped up from the White Earth Indian Reservation in 1919. Back in 1919, they were enduring a pandemic, just like we are today. The 1919 flu was rampant on the reservations and in the residential schools. He was slated to go to a residential school, but because the flu was rampant in the school. So many children were sick and dying. They did not send him there. They needed a place to send him because giving him back to his mother wasn't an option. They weren't going to do that because that could set a precedence for other families of, hey, Grace got her three sons back. Why can't we get our kids back? So the Indian agent had to find a place to put these three young. The ages were five, two, and 11 months he had to find a place to bring them. So just imagine, you are five years old. Your name is Richard. You are two years old. Your name is Clifford. You are 11 months old. You are a baby. You don't really know what's going on yet in this world. And your name is Glenwood. These were the names that were assigned to them. They were not their traditional Ojibwe names. Those names are lost to us. And you're put on a train. 
And you may be wondering, well, that's not so bad. Little do you know that on this train, each one of these children wore the tiniest pair of handcuffs because they did not want them to revolt and try to get off the train to run back home. They're put on this train and they're sent south to Owatonna, Minnesota, where they arrive at the Minnesota State Public School for Neglected and Abandoned Children. For some of these children, it was a haven. For others, it was a hell. Babies were adopted right away. There was a nursery building, and the moms would take the babies, put them out on the rug, and somebody could come and just, okay, I want that little infant right over there. And they would give you false documents. You'd pay them a little bit of money. They'd give you a birth certificate. You'd name it, and away you went. No background check, no home visit, no nothing like we have today. You just went away. Maybe you were a well-to-do family in the area or you were a farmer and you needed some help on your farm. So you went to the Minnesota State School to pick up an indentured servant. Children that could not be adopted out were contracted out as indentured servants. My grandfather and his brothers arrived at the Minnesota State School in the winter of 1919. He was two years old, and he only spent two years in the school. He was contracted out as an indentured servant at four years old. He only spent two years in the school, and when he arrived at the Minnesota State School, he and his brothers were separated because they did not want siblings to talk together for fear that they would make a plan to run away and try to get back to their family. Richard, Clifford, and Glenwood, when they went into this school, they were all categorized as Indian, brown hair, brown skin, black eyes, or brown eyes, good teeth. I don't know about you, but that just sounds really inhumane to me. And they were given a number and they were classified by the state of Minnesota as inmates. I don't know about you, but when I think of an inmate, I think of a criminal. I think of an adult. I don't think of a, of a five-year-old, a two-year-old, an 11-month-year-old child as an inmate. They were classified as inmates. We do not know what happened to my grandfather's brothers. He never saw his baby brother again. And we do not know where Richard ended up. We don't even know if Glenwood is the baby's real name. It could be an alias. Richard could also be an alias. We know Clifford is Clifford's name because that is a name he's had his entire life from the moment he was picked up to the moment he was contracted out to a family with the last name of Plody in Lake City, Minnesota. For a lot of children that were contracted out as an indentured servants, They had to work hard, extremely hard on the farms to to earn their keep. And this wage that they earned wasn't something that they got to keep. The farmers would give it back to the orphanage as repayment for taking care of them. It was another revenue stream for the state school, these indentured servants. It was boys and girls that were contracted out. And a majority of these children were abused by the people 
that they were contracted out to. Some of them came back in body bags. Some of them ran away, never to be seen again. So we have children that were contracted out as an indentured servant who are missing to this day. And nobody batted an eye because these children weren't wanted anyway and they were seen as a commodity. These families were supposed to send them to school, give them an education. Most of them only saw a classroom one day a month. My grandfather was the exception because George Plody and his wife, they were older, they wanted a child. And a way for them to get a child was by getting a toddler, an indentured servant. They sent my grandfather to school. He was educated. He was fluent in German and English. The only thing they didn't account for was he was an alcoholic in the making. He could drink anybody under the table. They set him up. They put the farm in trust so he would always have a place to live. He would always have some sort of revenue stream coming in. And because they knew he was an alcoholic and he had 13 children, they didn't want him to lose the farm due to a barbell. They wanted to make sure he had a home for his children. So they set him up that way. And one of the saddest things I've ever read in my life is I found a copy of George Plody's obituary online when he died. And in there it said, survived by foster son Clifford. He didn't even have the guts to claim him as his own son. My foster son. And I found some old census records as well for the Mount Pleasant Township. And they actually, the town clerk crossed out like they had indentured servant. And they crossed it out, put foster son. Crossed that out, crossed that out again and put indentured servant. That's how he was classified on his town census. Just imagine being that small. And everybody in your township knows you are the indentured servant. And one of the most interesting things about my grandfather is when he went into the, into the state school, his intake paperwork said he was Indian, brown skin, brown hair, brown eyes, good teeth. On his exit form, when he was contracted out as an indentured servant, with a stroke of a pen, his race was magically changed. He was now white with brown eyes, brown hair, brown skin, good teeth. And he could speak a little bit of English. With a stroke of a pen, my grandfather fell off the rolls of the White Earth Indian Reservation. With a stroke of a pen, his heritage, his race was taken away from him. All because our government believed in the theory of kill the Indian, save the child. Because our government so desperately wanted these native people to conform to what they thought was the perfect way of life. They destroyed hundreds of thousands of families. They destroyed hundreds of thousands of families via a tool that we like to call paper genocide. That's right, paper genocide. Some native families, their lineage is so messed up that even though they are full-blooded, they cannot get on their tribal roles because somewhere along the line, an Indian agent or a government official marked somebody's race as white. And they'll say, well, 
your great grandma was white, so we don't think you belong to our tribe. Maybe try this tribe over here. Or like my family, my grandfather's race was changed. And we had no idea what tribe he really belonged to. We're no longer on the rolls. We know he came from the White Earth Indian Reservation because my dad received a check from the White Earth Indian Reservation Land Recovery Project after my grandfather died. So that was our first clue of which reservation he actually belonged to. And he is not on the rolls. My great-grandmother, his mother, was an enrolled tribal member, but because of paper genocide, we are not enrolled. Our blood quantum is not counted. And this is a story for so many people, and it's so frustrating to know that just one little piece of paper can wipe out a whole line of Native people. Whether you are a quarter, 50%, or full-blooded, it can just wipe out your lineage just like that. A piece of paper. I never knew in my life that a piece of paper could be so deadly. I thought the worst thing we had to encounter was maybe a paper cut or somebody throwing a paper airplane into your eyeball and it scratching your eye. But really what it did was it killed an entire race of people. It tried to kill an entire race of people by switching their race from Indian to white. All because the fewer people on the reservation, the better it looked for the government. They tried to shrink the reservations so they could eliminate the reservations, but it didn't work. Paper genocide isn't going to work. Those of us that exist today who realize, hey, my family was affected by paper genocide are standing up saying, hey, hey, we're here too. We are here too. We may not be full blood. We may not look like our ancestors. I sure don't. I've got light skin, black curly hair. It's currently dyed blonde because, you know, midlife crisis and blue eyes because my grandfather, a full-blooded Ojibwe, married a full-blooded Irish woman. But I have the features of my great-grandmother. I spent my whole life wondering who I looked like in my family. And a couple years ago, I saw a photo of my great-grandmother for the first time, and I just stared at it. And my dad noticed I was crying. And I said, she has my big forehead, my nose, and my funny-shaped chin. I look just like my great-grandmother Grace. The only difference is she has beautiful brown eyes, beautiful brown skin, and I have blue eyes, which I love, and I have pale skin, but she and I, carbon copies. And just to think paper genocide is what took her family from her. And I can't help to wonder like, how my grandfather's life would have been if it weren't for that stroke of the pen. I often wonder if my grandfather had gone to that residential school like he was supposed to. Would he have survived the residential school? Would he be like those children laying in a grave in Canada? I know I wouldn't be here today because his life would have been completely different. He would have probably married someone from the reservation, had a life on the reservation. 
instead he was sent from this place, this beautiful place of woodlands and lakes and tall grass to a farm where he was sent to die. His culture, his life was taken from him and it was replaced with German. He grew up in a predominantly German community. That's why he learned German and English. He could speak both fluently, but he couldn't speak Ojibwe. And I, as his granddaughter, am working on telling his story, taking our heritage back, learning our language, our culture, so I can pass that forward, so I can close the gap, heal the circle, heal the wounds, because generational trauma is real. What he went through as a toddler definitely impacted the way he raised his children. He didn't know what the hell he was doing. My father grew up with an alcoholic dad, an abusive mother. He couldn't wait to leave the farm. And when he had children, he made the decision, I'm going to break this cycle. I'm going to break this curse. And he did. He did. But he also made sure that my sister and I knew about our grandfather, that our grandfather was native. And it wasn't until I went to college, until I met my professor who passed away, Gary, where I really started to understand my culture and understand why my grandfather was the way he was. My grandfather was trying to fit into a world that wasn't meant to understand him. He was trying to fit into a world that hated you if your skin was brown. And you were an Indian. He grew up in a world where he was different. And people didn't understand and nor did they care that, hey, I was taken when I was a toddler. Oh, that must have been a bad dream. One thing George Plody did was, when my grandfather was old enough, he told him where he came from. He told him his last name and what little information he knew about his mother. And with that information being told and retold, I'm able to piece together my family's story. And I'm so glad that you're coming along on this journey with me as we look into the Minnesota State School in Owatonna and how the 1919 flu affected the reservations, the residential schools, and just maybe with a little bit of tiny luck, I'll be able to find out what happened to Richard in Glenwood. I'll be able to find family that I have out there somewhere in this world that doesn't know what I exist yet. But when we find each other, we'll just have this automatic instant bond that I've felt before. And we'll know that we've closed the circle and we've told their story because these stories need to be told and continue to be told because the Native American experience is important. And as a biracial woman with Native American heritage running through my veins, my heart knows that in order to heal Indian country, the truth, it must be spoken. So thank you for coming along with me, for coming along on this journey of finding Clifford.
if you or someone you know was a Minnesota State Schooler at the Minnesota State's Public School for Neglected and Abandoned Children in Owatonna, Minnesota, or an Indian residential school, and you would like help finding out what happened to your relatives, send me an email at bearwilltravel at gmail.com. I would love to help you find your family. That is the goal of this podcast. We're going to find Clifford, Richard, and Glenwood. That is my hope. And hopefully we'll help bring so many other lost children home. Our hearts and our voices will not rest until we bring all of the children home.